This is John DeFalb from John Sandoz Bookshop in London. Today I am joined from New York on Zoom by the historian Mark Mazower. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Besides his recent memoir, What You Did Not Tell, about his Russian family background, Mark has written extensively on Eastern Europe. Dark Continent, Europe's 20th century, Hitler's Empire, Nazi rule in occupied Europe, Inside, Hitler's Greece, a little book on the Balkans, a substantial book on Salonika. Clearly, he has been much occupied with the history of modern Greece, and I've had the sense that it could only be a matter of time before he focused on the creation of modern Greece. In his new book, he has done just that. It is called The Greek Revolution, 1821 and the Making of Modern Europe and I'm thrilled that he's agreed to talk to us about it. The detail of the war, who did what to whom, can be very confusing, so I'd like to begin, Mark, by asking you to outline what was in fact meant by Greece in 1821. It is very confusing. In fact, it was very confusing to me, and the main reason that I wrote the book was to try and figure out, after years of teaching about the subject, what it was all about. And one of the things you appreciate very quickly is that lots of people are talking about Greece around 1820. And they have various ideas in their head, but what almost none of them have is the kind of specified territory uh, that came into being or that would emerge later on as, as, as the country that we know today. They, in other words, they were not thinking about Greece in a territorial sense. They were thinking about Greece, broadly speaking, in a cultural sense and what it stood for culturally. And so actually when the revolution broke out in 1821, it would be a brave man to say what exactly the territorial demands of the revolutionaries were. But at that point, it was still... Uh rather dismal province of the Ottoman Empire. Yes, there were, in fact, there was no it. There was an Ottoman Empire, yeah. uh, which was a multi-confessional empire that had existed for centuries. It had existed in Europe as far back as the 14th century. And Orthodox Christians and some Catholics and Muslims and Jews and others had lived in this all mixed up together. Some territories were more of one than the other, but this was not a, a, a polity that was run on uh, homogenous lines. And so there were, well, what should we call them? Orthodox Christians who spoke the Greek language. That's probably the closest you're going to get to what we mean by Greek. There were Orthodox Christians who spoke the Greek language in what is now Greece, but there were many in other parts of the Ottoman Empire as well, including many of them in Asia Minor, many of them in the Balkans, and some of, along, some of them along the shore of the Black Sea in Russia. And can you give any idea of the, the proportion of Orthodox Greek-speaking Christians in what we would now think of as Greek territory against other peoples? I can try, but it's not straightforward because this was a pre-statistics era. Perhaps it was a more honest era, but at any rate, we don't really have figures. Uh, we don't have census data. We can just extrapolate and guess. The best guess is that there were probably somewhere in the region of three million Orthodox Christians in the Ottoman Empire as a whole at that time, which was probably in the region of 23 million people. And if you're talking about the territories that were to become 
Greece uh, in 1830, probably somewhere only around a million or million and a half of them were in those territories. So another way of putting it is that when all the fighting is over and Greece comes into existence, there are more Greeks still in the Ottoman Empire, what's left of the Ottoman Empire, than in this new little kingdom. Um, and if the notion of Greece at the time then is something of an anachronism, um, it applies to something in ancient times, in antiquity, and, it, and we know what we think we mean by it, but at that time they didn't. What was the wider world like after the Napoleonic Wars? Um, it seems to me very significant, the timing of it. One forgets perhaps what was happening elsewhere when one reads history, but it seems in this case of immense importance that um, it's just six years after the defeat of Napoleon. What were the ramifications of that in, in Europe and how did that Im impact on Greece? I think that you're quite right and that too often the story of the Greek War of Independence is told absent the post-Napoleonic context. And in fact, you can't really understand it except in response to the kind of peace settlement that was forged in Europe in 1815 upon Napoleon's defeat, which was, to generalize broadly, a conservative settlement that was dictated by the major powers in Europe at that time, who, who all wanted to shore up their empires and had no sympathy for anything like the rights of peoples or nations. And so there was great disappointment uh, amongst people such as the Serbs and the Greeks, or at least their propagandists and their revolutionaries, that the, the uh, peacemakers had not been more sympathetic to their cause. Um, and that's in fact why I wanted to tell the story in a way that brought out the European implications of this, because I think it would be a mistake to just see this as a kind of complicated little conflict that flared up momentarily and grabbed Byron's attention on the fringe of Europe. The reason that it grabbed Byron's attention and Shelley's and Pushkin's was they could see what the stakes were. And the stakes were essentially, were you going to acquiesce in the Ancien Regime or were you going to imagine a Europe of nations ruled under some form of popular sovereignty? And eventually, of course, you got there. That's basically what we have today, for better or worse. And the Greek Revolution was perhaps the critical moment in making everyone aware of what the future might look like. There always seems to me a, a, an irony in the defeat of Napoleon that there's a lot of, by necessity, young men involved in, in it. Um, many of them, their education, they're raised has been heavily influenced by ideals of the French Revolution, liberté, égalité, fraternité. You think of the young Russians taking Napoleon's surrender in Paris. They all want this liberté, égalité, fraternité, and they're going back home, and they're being boxed up again, all over again. So, so that there's sort of an irony playing out, which must have extended back into Greece as well, that all around Europe, there's a lot of young men excited 
by the ideas of Napoleonic Europe, but what can they do about it? They go into secret societies, which yes. um, is what happened in Greece. Yes, there, there, there were somewhere probably between a million and two million soldiers who were demobilized at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, many of them French, many of them regarded as suspect for having fought for Napoleon by the Bourbons. And so they're casting around for something to do. And what they know how to do is fight. So some of them go off and fight in South America in the various wars against Spanish rule. Some of them fight in Spain and Portugal, and Sicily and Piedmont, and an increasing number when the war breaks out in Greece, head off to Greece to go and fight there um, because they see this as all part of the same cause. And there's something else which is a coincidence, but something more than a coincidence, which is, of course, Napoleon dies in British captivity um, in the spring of 1821, just as the revolt is beginning in Greece. And the news comes to Europe at about the same time, the news of the uprisings. And in the minds of many contemporaries, uh, both those who are against what the Greeks are doing and those who are for it, the two events are somehow conjoined. What the Greeks are doing is continuing what Napoleon was doing, but for some of them without the tyranny. It's, it's fascinating, this, the overlapping elements of it. Um, and as you say, that it's not something which is happening, which is isolated on the fringes of Europe. Um, and yet when we get to um, what happened... Once again, we see the division uh, of different elements. Um, there is just as there is no coherent idea of what is Greece, there is no coherent idea of what is a Greek. So, who were the major factions as as fighting starts breaking out? Yes, it's a good question, and uh, actually, it becomes clear that there are many divisions on the Greek side. Um, and I suppose you could break it down roughly as follows. Um, there are some, let's call them young professional revolutionaries. Many of them have been working and even trained in Russia for a time, They're, or they've been at German or French universities. They're steeped in European enlightenment and revolutionary thought, and their heads are full of the latest constitutions, and they just want to go straight back and introduce a parliamentary system. And then there are the, the chieftains who one is familiar with from these great lithographs by the Bavarians afterwards in their fustanellas and massive yataghans and huge well-kempt moustaches who don't really look like they were bothered too much by French constitutional thought. And in fact, they weren't bothered by it and they become increasingly suspicious of the revolutionaries. There is also a landowning class, especially in the Peloponnese, of rather wealthy Greeks who had prospered quite well under the Ottomans and who join in only when it becomes clear that that's the best way to safeguard their estates. There are probably 25 really big families. And one of the interesting things is if you fast forward to the end of the 19th century or the early 20th century, you see the same names amongst the ministers and the prime ministers of independent Greece as you had seen amongst the landowning notables of the last Ottoman years. They had navigated the revolution by switching from the Ottoman side to the revolutionary side and procured their power. So these are the major divisions. There are very sharp regional divisions. 
Kolokotronis uh, doesn't ever really want to leave the Peloponnese. He doesn't really want to leave his native region of the Peloponnese. He certainly doesn't like leaving the Peloponnese. Um, the bishops are very important. And underneath all of them are these poor, long-suffering peasants, the farmers, who I argue were the real heroes of the whole thing in the sense that it was their patience and their stamina and their work, actually, their food, that allowed the Greeks to hold out. There's one one other um, faction that you mentioned, or that, that, that I wanted to mention, which is, um, f for want of a better term, the ship owners. They seem s significant. Yes, very significant. Uh, um, the Greek merchant marine had flourished under the Ottomans, actually, with the with the support of the Ottoman, a successive Ottoman governments. And we can now see, and I draw on very new research by Greek historians for this, that, that actually not just three or four, but dozens of islands had pretty significant seagoing fleets. And it came as a shock to me to realize that although most of their boats are the size of brigs, that is to say they have about 20 or 25 crew, they're not big and they can't stand up to the big Ottoman warships, but some of them, could travel across the Atlantic. I mean, they were carrying wheat to Montevideo and Buenos Aires. Uh, they were making the, the voyage to Bombay. These were massively experienced sailors upon whom the Ottomans uh, depended in their fleet. And so when the Greeks defected and started fighting them, one of the key things that happened was that they um, won control of the seas very, very quickly. And the Ottomans were really terrified to cross the Aegean. Um, so we've got a um, highly divided idea of, of what became Greece. And yet something happened. How did it happen? And yes. what happened? I, I, I think you're right to stress that because too often the histories just go into endless detail about who was fighting whom on the Greek side. And, and, and one loses sight of two things as a result. One is that despite all their divisions and there was a massive trust problem on the Greek side, you see the Greek chieftains busy in the middle of the war, marrying off sons and daughters to, to other notables. Why? Because then you could trust somebody. Mm. So there was no trust absent that. So um, there is mistrust. But on the other hand, the Greeks fight together um, and agree on common political institutions surprisingly well, I think. There's a common commitment to these new European style institutions, even though the Capitans don't understand what they are, they go along with them. And so there's a common purpose. And the other thing I think that we lose sight of, and we still haven't really grasped this, and I, 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 my, I don't have the last word on this by any means, not even the first word really is, we don't really know very much about the Ottoman response to the Greek uprising, because the key question is why the Ottomans lost. They should never have been defeated. I mean, it's a staggering level of incompetence or some other factor explains why an imperial army like the Ottoman army could not wipe out the Greek insurgency in a matter of weeks. And that's still the big question. Well, you do bring some answers, I think, to that or some suggestions, but let's come back to that. Um, the... the what ha 
happened to begin with, so far as I understand, was in the what we now think of as Romania, some uh, insurgency was created by a group of in a secret society. So we've got European intellectuals there raising the a banner, and they managed to do that, so far as I understand, by touting the idea, completely false, that the Russians are backing them. So everybody gets excited that the Russians are behind them, and the word for that the word about that gets down into the Peloponnese. And so then what happens in the Peloponnese? Why do they respond? Well, I, I said at the start that it was a horribly complicated story. One of the complications is it doesn't have a clear beginning. It has a false start. What, what, what do I mean? The Greeks today celebrate March the 25th as the anniversary of the uprising, because supposedly that's when it really began in the Peloponnese. But in fact, the previous month, as you say, the uprising had really begun a thousand miles to the north in what's now Romania on the borders of, of Ukraine and what was and Russia. Um, and the reason that had happened there was that the Greeks had formed a secret society, in retrospect, an astonishingly successful secret society. And they'd put in charge a guy who was of Greek origin, but he was an officer in the Tsarist army, rather high up officer in the Tsarist army. Turned out to be, had his head full of grandiose dreams, but he was a hopeless organizer. He changes his mind half a dozen times about where to start the uprising. He sends off people to the Peloponnese to get them ready. And then whilst they're mobilizing the Peloponnese, he changes his mind and he decides the easiest way to start this off would be to cross from the Russian border into the Ottoman Empire, because those two provinces of the Ottoman Empire that he's going to cross into are in fact Christian provinces. Moldavia and Wallachia. The Ottoman army was not supposed to go into them. Uh, and so he leads his expedition across into Moldavia and they gather a large army of, of Greek and other volunteers and off they go. Um, and then within three months, the Ottoman army's crushed them. That's it, finished. So, so it's a false start. It's a false start, which the Ottomans deal with quite straightforwardly, uh, nothing, business as usual. And the Ottomans were th thought it was business as usual because they th also thought that they were dealing with the Albanian Ali Pasha. Tell us about Ali Pasha. Ali Pasha is a wonderful figure. Uh, he's lurking in the margins of uh, the Count of Monte Cristo, uh, Dumas' novel, whose heroine Haide says she's the daughter of this famous Albanian Ali Pasha, who was a sort of name to evoke in France at that time. Um, the fundamental problem in the 18, early 1820s for the Ottomans was not the Greeks. They didn't really think there was a problem, going to be a problem with the Greeks. Their problem was establishing the Sultan's centralized rule over the provinces in general, because in a number of different provinces, extremely powerful governors or pashas had asserted themselves and were in the habit of defying him. And the most notable of these was Ali Pasha of Yanina, who had risen from, from being a kind of glorified policeman to a man who from his city of Yanina, still a very, very beautiful city high in the Pindus Mountains, was basically controlling half to two thirds of what's today Greece. 
uh, through his sons and through his servants, many of whom were Greek. He was an Albanian, and the Albanians play an extremely important role in the story, um, and one which is overlooked because everybody finds it hard enough to understand as a story of Greeks against Turks. But the Albanians uh, were in a majority in much of what's now Western Greece. Some of them were Christian, some of them were Muslim, uh, most of them did not care very much about religion, and Ali Pasha seems not to have cared very much about religion. Um, this is what made an impression on Byron when Byron went and visited him a few years earlier. And Ali Pasha um, becomes such a problem for the Sultan that in 1820, the Sultan resolves to exterminate him. And he sends a large army to do that. And so there is an enormous Ottoman army besieging Yanina in through 1820 into the spring of 1821 when the Greeks rise up in the Peloponnese and in the Danubian principalities. And the instant reaction of the Ottomans is, oh, Ali Pasha has got them to do this. Let's so, get rid of Ali Pasha first. The, um, that, that's very interesting because it's, it's as if it's a, in retrospectively, it's almost as if there's a diversion going on, but actually that was the main action. Um, yes. Um, and the Greeks were very conscious of this. They, they sent out instructions to people saying, let's go and mobilize the Greeks and we'll tell Ali Pasha we're doing it for him. And you mentioned Byron. So around about this time, Byron starts getting involved. Byron has been uh, living in Italy for a while. He can't go back to London, to, to England. He's left England. Uh, he's He's fed up. He's... A clever man who's the, the uh, who's become uh, known all around the, the, the literate world. He, he's really famous. He's in he's with Shelley in Pisa, and another of the people he, whom he knows in Pisa is this um, extraordinary fellow Mavra Cordato. So, um, why does Byron get involved? What I, I, Byron gets involved because he, as you say, he's at a bit of a loose end. He's getting bored. Uh, 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 Shelley dies, tragically drowned. He goes duck hunting with his friend Trevelyan, who is this extraordinary Cornish adventurer who ends up going with him Trelawney, to Greece. Trelawney. Sorry, Trelawney. And mar marrying the half-sister of one of the most thuggish chieftains. And so when he learns that there's this committee has been formed in London to support the Greeks in early 1823 and is looking for people to lead it, um, it comes at a very fortunate time for him and he pledges to get involved. Um, he's a very intelligent man, as you say. I think I had not, I, 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 I had not realized just how carefully he approached the business of being a, a, a commissioner for the London Greek Committee and figuring out who to support. Um, and because he's a very careful man, he takes his time about getting involved. He doesn't want to be used by one side or another. Eventually, he goes to the port of Mesolonghi on the west coast of Greece, and he sets up there as his base but after only a few months, before he can do very much, 
he falls ill of a fever and as you know, he dies. Now, the Archbishop of the Greeks in Pisa had said to a friend when he'd learned that Byron was interested in supporting them, do what you can to help Byron, he said. You know, it's not that he can do us a lot of help, but he can do us a lot of harm if he decides not to support us. And that was probably a reasonably accurate assessment of Byron alive. But actually Byron dead did the Greek cause enormous good. It was his death in Messalonghi, before the siege of Messalonghi, uh, that really was, was the kind of galvanizing moment in which this massive celebrity, and he really incarnated celebrity in Europe in 1824, identifies himself with the fight of the Greeks. And so his death, I think more than his, more than his life, um, di redirects Europe's attention towards the Greeks. What that means above all is money. It meant, well, it meant two things. It did mean money uh, and the money was coming in uh, from England and from France and from elsewhere. But I think it meant something more important than that. It meant a transformation of public opinion and uh, the importance of this period and the importance of the Greek revolution was that it was the first moment in European history, in my opinion, where you can see the power of public opinion. Really Today, that we take this so much for granted that we can't believe it had a beginning, yeah. but it did have a beginning. And contemporaries were very conscious of this new force in politics. Yeah. And you see Tory statesmen muttering, you know, what happened to the good old days when ambassadors could just decide things for themselves? And there wasn't all this nonsense coming out of the taverns. And Byron's death galvanizes public opinion and forces the European statesmen to change their view. That, that question or the issue of public opinion perhaps also relates to your earlier remark about why the Ottomans failed. Because the Ottoman response to what was going on was um, they just did what the Ottomans did. Um, but usually nobody was much bothered by that but on in these occasions things went a bit wrong because they were reported in european newspapers in new ways in particular for example um what happened tell us about what happened at, in on the island of Chios. yes you're right you get the first sort of notion of the atrocity of the massacre so the ottomans had approached this and the Sultan was very hard line. He had to be restrained from some of his more draconian impulses, but he was pretty hard line. And he proclaimed that, that uh, Ottoman forces could kill Greek men in insurgent areas and enslave the women and children en masse, whether or not they were involved or not. Um, and the Greek revolutionaries had landed on the island of Chios, which is just off the Turkish coast, and was far and away the most populous and the most wealthy island in the archipelago to force the Hiots onto the Greek side. The Hiots did not want to go because they knew what was going to happen and because they had a pretty good life. Um, but the, the landing of Greek insurgents prompted the Ottomans to send an expeditionary force and to send men. And of course, within days, they had chased the Greek insurgents off the island and then the Ottoman irregulars laid waste to the island and they killed 
They killed at least 25,000 people. They enslaved tens of thousands or more. It was a terrible catastrophe. I mean, it, it's, that was not business as usual for the Ottoman Empire either. That was very unusual. And it makes a huge impact in Europe, as we know from, from uh, the paintings of Delacroix mm -hmm. and others. And Delacroix becomes hugely involved in following what's going on in Greece. He seeks out Frenchmen who fought with the Greeks and takes them out to lunch to get their stories. Um, and later he'll uh, paint the other great masterpiece to come out of this uh, uh, um, about Mesolonghi. Um, so these events like uh, Chios in 1822, the fall of Mesolonghi, even more important in the spring of 1826, uh, they, 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 uh, the only way of putting it is to say they rouse Europeans to a kind of emotional pitch. Which, and, and, and they're of great excitability and compassion and, and concern. And um, that means, to some extent, there's money coming through. Um, it means that there is some unity created, uh, I suppose, if not in terms of what they want, at least in terms of what they don't want, that the different factions, they, they don't want chaos. That's right. Well, the, what, what the atrocities do is they lead slowly to a very important shift in European diplomacy. So the principle of European diplomacy at the start of all of this has been, we don't like revolutions. Let the Ottomans crush the revolution. Yeah. Then, uh, it changes because the British and the Russians conclude that you cannot allow the Ottomans to continue killing Christians indefinitely. In other words, their concern now is not the Greeks as revolutionaries, but the Greeks as Christians. Yeah. And then after Mesolonghi, the Ottoman army comes in and it enslaves tens of thousands of people. And now there is a new, very volatile uh, addition to the concern, which is slavery. Um, and this is an era of uh, strong abolitionism. And so European sentiment towards the Greeks is mobilized around the need to stop Ottoman Muslims enslaving Christian Greeks. Can we just backtrack a moment? There's, there's one, um, I think, important element which we've passed over, which is the Ottoman failure to end the revolt has made the Sultan turn to another immensely powerful Pasha, provincial Pasha, namely Mehmet Ali in Egypt, who's become, if not to a state of being an independent ruler of Egypt, he nevertheless is extremely powerful. And he sends his son Ibrahim Pasha to invade the Peloponnese to invade, so the Sultan doesn't want to do it, send in the um, Egyptians, they're going to sort it out. So what happened then? Why didn't that work? Yes, uh, it very nearly did work. Uh, it was a measure of the Sultan's desperation that he had to turn to Mehmet Ali, probably the most powerful figure of all in the Ottoman Empire at this time, technically only the governor of Egypt, but in fact, aspiring to create a dynasty of his own, which he does, and doing so by controlling Cairo, ignoring the Sultan and building up, this was the key, 
a modern European-style army with French advisors. And so Napoleonic Napoleonic officers uh, uh, help him to do this. And so uh, his son, who is a commander of genius, Ibrahim, lands the Egyptian army on the shores of the Peloponnese in the winter of beginning of 1825. And over the next two to three years, they basically chase down most of the Greek insurgents in the Peloponnese. They helped the Ottoman army end the siege of Messalonghi. Uh, and I would say by the summer of 1827, they are very close to wiping out the Greek revolution entirely. Uh, and one village after another surrenders to come back into the fold. It's fascinating reading just how close run it was because they're operating a scorched earth policy. It's absolutely savage. And th- that savagery is a constant throughout the course of the war. It's shocking, really, reading it. Of course, I suppose any war is shocking to read about, but it's it's quite easy to fall into a sort of romantic idea of... You look at their fustanellas and the moustaches and the yatagans, and you, you can get a romantic idea of a, this war of independence. Actually... The the savagery on all sides that you describe is blood-curdling. And uh, Greeks towards the Turks, as much as Turks or notion, whatever, however you want to describe them, um, the, 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 the butchery, the massacres, the, the awful things that are going on in all directions, um, culminating in the siege of Messalonghi, when, as you say, Tens of thousands end up being enslaved? Possibly. Certainly th- thousands, thousands end up being enslaved from Messalonghi and thousands more from the Peloponnese. Mm. So it's quite possible you end up with 10,000 or something like that cumulatively in that period. Another thing that s- struck me when reading it is the um, is your reference to piracy and, and its the role in all this, uh, and or, or non-role. What... T- Tell us about that. Yes, with, with pleasure. Yeah, I, I mean, you're absolutely right. The thing is not being right, not being fought according to the Marcus of Queensbury rules. These yeah. guys are very tough and they, they fight according to different rules and they shock the Europeans who go. And this is true on sea as well as on land. Um, the islands in the Greek national mythology play a very important role in the war because they they are the heroes of the sea. Uh, They are in these little boats up against the enormous Ottoman galleons. They use fire ships, which are old decommissioned ships that they've coated with tar, that they have to sail right up to the Ottoman galleon and then set fire to and then row away from as a weapon of war. So it requires a lot of courage and skill to, to do this, and they and they are very effective at it, and they terrify the Ottomans. So they're these heroic figures. Uh, at the same time, we now know uh, that there are other aspects to the war at the sea that help us understand how it was conducted. First of all, who paid for it? Who pa- There's no government to pay these guys, so they pay for it themselves. They pay for it themselves if they see a very heavily laden merchantman sailing nearby, Um, by seizing it and confiscating the goods. 
and butchering the butchering the crews and the passengers if they happen to be Muslim. That's a sort of standard operating procedure. Um, but actually, sometimes butchering the crews if they happen to be Greeks as well. Um, they are they are paying uh, by piracy or they're paying by normal commerce. Less glamorous, but much more important. Most of these vessels that were involved in the war were actually for the rest other months of the year in, involved in the normal commercial traffic, such as there was. Over time, the normal commercial traffic dwindles because it's just too dangerous to be to be um, conducting activity business in the Aegean, and and the Greek government is desperate to make ends meet, and it starts selling um, patents for corsairing to the sea captains. Well, they call them patents for corsairing, but they're basically, they're basically what they're doing is minting certificates to become pirates. And so by the summer of 1827, piracy has become this um, hot potato issue in European diplomacy as well. And basically one of the reasons why the European powers intervene to put an end to the fighting is so that they can then wipe out the pirates afterwards and restore normal commerce to the Eastern Mediterranean. So um, we've got slavery, we've got piracy um, in, on a massive scale. And we've also got European interest and European outrage for what we'd now called humanitarian reasons. Among the, if you like, relief, well, there have been a lot of foreigners knocking around Greece at this point, some very much less helpful than others, um, though they all think they're marvellous. Um, among the helpful ones, you refer to some Americans. It's really interesting that, I think. Who are they? Yes. Uh, well, there were Americans amongst the, the Phil Hellenes of the first hour. There's a very interesting figure called Jarvis. We have his uh, notebooks, um, who went off quite early, stayed throughout the war, um, fought with the Greeks, learned Greek quite well, as far as we can tell, um, and was in some of the thickest of the action. Uh, and there were a couple of others as well, very important figures, uh, Samuel Howe, who later becomes a major abolitionist figure. Um, and they make an interesting switch in 1826-27, because as the news of what's happening in Greece spreads around the world, um, it's the Americans on the east coast of the US in particular, um, who move to the forefront of what you would now call an international relief effort. And there is an immense upsurge in voluntary giving and charitable donations to Greek committees that are formed in every large and small American town. And these uh, then are shipped off, goods that are shipped off to Greece. And they realize very smartly that any goods at all that enter this devastated, impoverished territory are going to be gold dust to the warring chieftains. And so they look for experienced agents who could supervise the distribution because they, for the first time, make this distinction that is so important to us between combatants and non-combatants. And they want their relief only to go to the non-combatant population. And Jervis Howe, Post, and other, a man called Miller, Yankee Miller, uh, 
three of them, how Miller and Jervis had been fighting for the Greeks, act as agents for the most important of the American Greek committees. And for us, what's most precious is they send regular reports or keep notebooks of what they do. And so they are really the first people or some of the first people in this conflict after six or seven years to have any real interest for the civilian population. And so we get a view of what they've suffered through the letters and reports that they send back. And that is interesting, again, when looked at from the point of view of the modern era, making certain distinctions, which are now we routinely make, make which were perhaps not formalised then, but certainly made then. Um, so the, the, the war was then brought to an end suddenly. What happened? Yes. Uh, well, there had been this shift in policy. And so the British and the Russians, and then joined by the French, decide we have to bring this thing to an end. But in the usual way, they wanted to bring it to an end without fighting of any kind. So they wanted to try to enforce a peace upon the Greeks and the Ottomans. And they decide to send in a joint flotilla into the Eastern Mediterranean with instructions to keep the two sides apart which is not easy to do since they're fighting on land as it's on sea, and this is just a flotilla. So the instructions are nonsensical. They leave a lot of discretion to the commanders of the fleet. And the fleet is sent in, and its particular mission is to instruct the Egyptians that they won't be allowed to resupply their army in the Peloponnese from Egypt. And that is a major, a major blow to them. Whilst they are doing this and they're trying to get the consent of the Egyptians, the news reaches them from the, from the Peloponnese, just on the shore near where they are, that the Egyptian military have embarked upon a new uh, policy and it fills them with horror. And the policy is this, that they have given their soldiers axes, they've bought 10,000 axes with them, and the soldiers have been instructed that if there are any Greek villages that refuse to profess their fidelity to the Sultan, the Egyptian soldiers will go in and they will uproot all their olive groves and their vineyards uh, and their fruit trees. Everybody who learns about this, even people who are completely comfortable with the normal ways of war in the Eastern Mediterranean are horrified. They say, this has never been done before. It's absolutely barbaric. This kind of, we call it eco-warfare. And so it convinces Codrington, who's the admiral in charge of the flotilla and others, that they have to act. And they send their fleet into the Bay of Navarino, where the combined Ottoman Egyptian fleet are at, at rest. And what exactly happens to trigger the battle is not clear. But uh, there is a battle between the two fleets. And at the end of this, the Ottoman fleet is completely wiped out, is now useless. And at that point, it becomes clear that there's no hope for supplying the Ottoman army in the Peloponnese. The war in the Peloponnese is effectively over as of that minute. Uh, and that is the, the end of the war. It's not necessarily the beginning of independent Greece, but it is the end of the war. The, um, so response to, to that, the, um, to, to Navarino, is complicated though, um, and that's it's extremely interesting, you, I think. The, on the one hand, um, you have um, 
the Sultan realizing that it's game over. Um, on the on the other hand, you have um, in Britain that somebody refer is it the Foreign Secretary uh, as it the untoward event. It's the King actually to Parliament. So why? That's fascinating. Because the architect of the policy of coming to the support of the Greeks, uh, George Canning, had died in office. And so his successors, who were presiding over what turns into this uh, uh, decisive battle, are not at all sure that they wanted the decisive battle to take place. It had not been done on their orders. And they're, they're not really bothered about the Greeks, but they're bothered about the Russians. And they're worried that by knocking out the Ottoman army and humiliating the Sultan, their great enemy, the Russians, going to be empowered. And so actually their reaction to Navarino, paradoxically, is to say this was a victory we really didn't want. And therefore the diplomacy that takes place over the next few years to establish a political settlement and an independent Greece is a very complicated one. There's no moment at which everything is finally settled. It really takes four or five years. Uh, but by 1832, 1833, when the new young king arrives uh, to take up his throne, you have general recognition of an independent kingdom under a king of Greece, uh, and at that point, you can start to talk about uh, a new independent uh, state of Greece. Um, and that's come about through an extraordinary shift in international policy from determined absence of support to, in, to intervention um, to raising of loans and so forth, an intervention on what we now call humanitarian grounds, perhaps, or easing of f f um, international issues. Um, it involves remarkable double standards, of which, again, I suppose all wars show marks. For example, the French, who are both helping the Egyptian army, um, at the same time, they're raising loans that help defeat him, and you get Delacroix. And Delacroix's pictures were seen, weren't they? Yes. Uh, I mean, the, the Delacroix pictures are fascinating because there's this very important art exhibition in Paris at the Galerie Le Brun that is held in the spring of 1826, and they more or less just opened when the devastating news comes in at the end of the siege of Thessaloniki. The siege of Messalonghi had gone on for nearly a year. It was absolutely hopeless. There were somewhere like 30,000 troops besieging a town of nine or 10,000 people that was running out of food. And so the inhabitants decide their only hope of safety is a sortie by night. They'll leave everybody who can't run to be killed and the rest of them will try to make for the hills. So it's an extraordinarily dramatic and tragic denouement to this siege. And as soon as Delacroix hears about it, uh, he spends the early part of the summer painting a new painting, which is the spirit of Greece upon the ruins of Messalonghi, which actually you can now see at an exhibition in the Louvre. Uh, you can see it in its full glory. Uh, and it's shown at the Galerie Lorbeau that, that summer, and it incarnates this outrage that Europe feels. Um, there, but as you say, there are many paradoxes. For instance, one of the things that Delacroix points out, and he is, of course, a great colorist, is a kind of racial dimension 
to the outrage. So uh, uh, Greece is a beautiful young woman in a kind of supplicant pose uh, in a white garment. And there is this triumphant figure standing on the skyline of an Ottoman warrior holding his standard. And he's African, he's black. Yeah. And part of the outrage unquestionably was a kind of racialized outrage hmm. that black African Muslim soldiers should be enslaving white Christian Greek women. And this fueled the outrage and it fits uncomfortably with the way we think about Philhellenism today, yes. where we don't like to think of that racial dimension. But this was part of the mix of the time. And part of the mix too, I suppose, was that uh, we don't like to think of those Philhellenes having slaves themselves, and yet they did. Well, some yes. of them, some of, well, certainly, yes, they did. Um, and there were European officers fighting in the Egyptian army who were who had um, slave women in their tents. Um, so this was another discordant note that, that, that we're not used to. Um, the war is generally pretty un the course of the war is generally pretty unfamiliar to readers. But your subtitle indicates that you regard it as a war of immense importance, not a, importance not only to the Greeks themselves, but also to the rest of Europe. And it's interesting how we've referred, you've referred, as we started to South America, we've talked about East Coast Americans. At the same time in Russia, something that fascinates me, is the Decemberist revolt, which uh, it was a disaster, but it happened for very similar reasons in 1825 in Russia. I have a um, particular interest in some of this because my great-great-grandfather was Danish Consul General in Tunis from 1820 to 30, and then in Greece in Nafplion, which at that point was the so-called capital, in 1833 to 35. I've always rather wondered what on earth the Danes had a representative there for. But bearing in mind that they're Francophile rather than Anglophile, it would, it would have been consistent that he was, a, he was an antiquary. But I suspect that he was actually involved in redeeming slaves and sorting out that uh, there would have been people like him working for European powers, dealing with the fallout of slavery and piracy in the Eastern Mediterranean. Dealing with the fallout of slavery in particular was one of the major preoccupations of the consuls in the Eastern Mediterranean in the late 1820s and the 1830s. And there was a very strong Danish connection, actually. There were many Danish Philhellenes. There was the, the archaeology had taken root in Denmark in these years. So there were famous Danish archaeologists, Bronstedt and others, who were scouring the ruins. So that he was, he was part of a milieu that was actually characteristic of Europe at that time, which is they really, this was the moment in which they were rediscovering ancient Greece. Yeah. And then for some of them, ancient Greece had literally come to life. Yeah. It's hard for us to imagine that, but for them, at least until they get to know what's going on better, <laughs> that's how they imagine it. Yeah, a very highly romanticized idea of it. Yeah, and then a great disillusionment follows. Yeah. After that digression, I think it's time to bring our talk to a close. So thank you, Mark Mazower, for your time and your generous responses. Thank you, too, for writing a superb book, which 
must be deeply interesting to those interested in Greece and also anyone interested in the 19th century European history of that period and the idea of the rise of the nation-state. I should add too that it's been beautifully produced by Alan Lane with two sections of excellently reproduced images of um, a lot of moustaches and yatagans. Um, it's available at £30. Let us know if you would like a copy. And meanwhile, thank you, Mark Mazar. Thank you so much.